Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. In this episode, we are going to be discussing induction of labor and cervical ripening, and in particular, looking at how this can affect you as a person. I am Zoya Mabuto Mugoditwa, and I'm joined in the conversation today by Dr. Lenique Lindekew. Uh, Dr. Linda Q is an obstetrician and gynecologist in private practice. A warm welcome to you, Dr. Uh, really happy that you've been able to join us for the conversation today. Hi, Zoya. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Doctor, maybe just to kickstart, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your occupation entails, and then we'll get straight into the conversation. So, as you said, my name is Dr. Lenique Linda Q. I currently reside in Belito, KwaZulu Natal. And I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, which means I am a physician for women, both pregnant and non-pregnant. Thank you very much. So, I mean, I, f- I feel as though we are in good hands. It's always wonderful to know that we're in the hands of people who know exactly what they're doing and what they're talking about. Doctor, let's talk about, you know, cervical ripening and induction of labor. What exactly do we mean by these? And is there a difference between the two? So, absolutely not. Cervical ripening and induction is more or less the same thing said in the same way. What it means is we need to get the mouth of the womb open so that our baby can come out. So, inducing labor means bringing on labor and cervical ripening is the method we use to bring on labor. And so, at some point, I suppose a woman is pregnant, uh, she goes into labor Let's talk a little bit about that. What are the signs that labor may be starting? And, you know, what, what do we mean by this? Well, different signs that labor could be starting could include the following, that your baby moves down or drops in your belly. You might have an increased vaginal discharge that is thick, mucus-like, or even have a little bit of blood in it, which in that discharge we normally call the mucus plug. It's not a definitive indication that labor is about to start, but it is a sign that labor is on the way. You could also experience your water breaking during your pregnancy, and that is usually a sign that your, your labor is on the way. We obviously have to talk about contractions. Those are lower back pains and belly cramps. During this time, the, the uterus tightens, and it could be painful and make your belly feel hard. And after a contraction, the uterus usually relaxes and the pain goes away. Now, it's very important to distinguish between contractions, two contractions, and Braxton Hicks contractions, which are false labor contractions. But I think we can talk about that a little bit later. So I'm curious about, I mean, just having listened to some of the signs that labor may be starting, I'm curious about when during all of this, you know, someone like yourself, an obstetrician, would discuss the option of actually inducing labor uh, with a patient. All right. So an induction is not our first choice. Our first choice is to go into spontaneous labor if we want a normal delivery. But induction is sometimes necessary under certain uh, medical circumstances, medical conditions that necessitate us to induce labor if we want the labor to start and the pregnancy to end. Or the most common reason for induction of labor is that you post your dates. You post your delivery time and uh, it's time for the baby to come out and spontaneous labor hasn't commenced and we need to induce the labor. It's so interesting you should say that because I fall under the third category. So all of my children, I have three, all of them came after 40 weeks. Uh, 
And I remember at some point there was some concern that these children need to come out. So, so doctor, talk to me. You make mention of the fact that, you know, this is not always the first choice. And in fact, it isn't the first choice. And you said, uh, you know, what might, uh, you know, impact or, or, or cause us to go the route of induction of labor would be sort of medical conditions or certain circumstances. Can you take me through those? So what are the sort of circum, what, what circumstances or medical conditions would necessitate an induction of labor? So first of all, let's look at chronic diseases. I think the most pertinent one is gestational hypertension or chronic hypertension. That can also lead to preeclampsia, which would mean that we need to terminate the pregnancy at a later stage or at an earlier stage. And when I say terminate the pregnancy, Zoya, don't get a fright. It literally just means to end the pregnancy. And that is obviously labor or a seizure, depending on the mode of delivery. Other medical conditions which oh. could in- indicate that you need an induction or ending your Pregnancy could be diabetes, that is gestational diabetes, or ladies with diabetes beforehand, because we know that those babies don't do well towards the end of term, and we want them delivered preferably by 38 weeks. Um, let's move on to uh, diseases of the placenta. Perhaps the placenta is tearing away from the womb, which is known as an abrupture placenta, and that in that case we want the delivery by 38 weeks if you've had a previous abrupture. And previous intrauterine fetal death is an indication for an induction at 38 weeks. Preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, that's usually 34 weeks or after that you've diagnosed in a rupture of membranes, in which case labor should commence. Or pre-labor rupture of membranes, so your term and your waters break and your contractions don't start. So we need to start contractions at that stage. There's also a reason to do an induction if there is a suspected chorioamnionitis, which is a very nice way of saying infection in the waters surrounding your baby, Mm. in which case that baby needs to come out. And we've discussed earlier about post-dates pregnancies. That is 41 weeks and above. So we know in our great science that a pregnancy lasts approximately 40 weeks, give or take two weeks. So we define the term pregnancy between completed 37 weeks and 42 weeks. But we also know that the placenta starts running out of its blood supply later in pregnancy. So the baby outgrows the placenta and the placenta is literally the place where the baby gets all its feeding and nourishment from oxygen and where waste products are deposited. Mm. So when the placenta is not working well, the pregnancy needs to end. And then Two more points is intrauterine growth restriction when your baby has growth restriction either at 38 weeks and sometimes earlier. And then, of course, social reasons. The patient may stay far from the hospital or there might have been a previous um, storm labor or precipitous labor, which means the lady went into labor and two hours later she delivered, in which case we need to induce you to prevent you from delivering next to the side of the road. And then, obviously, for maternal requests. I mean, what I'm hearing, doctor, is that there's so many different, um, you know, reasons. There's so many different factors that could contribute to the need to induce. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, do we then say we, we have, you know, a time frame? Of, is there a particular time where we then would typically advise that somebody induce, or is it just informed by, you know, the reason that one would need to induce the pregnancy in the first place? 
So you've got to remember every person is individual and every pregnancy is individual and needs to be treated as such. So depending on where you are, how far you are and what the reason for induction is, I think it's safe to say that inductions are usually only performed when medically necessary. And if not, then we don't try and induce a baby before 39 weeks. I think the consensus is 39 weeks is safely a time that we can start doing an induction. Anything before that would be medically indicated. And of course, in the case of someone like me who went sort of post or past full term, is this when you then say to me, perhaps we need to look at getting that baby out. I've been pregnant for 40 weeks. I want the baby to come out. That would obviously, you know, have a different time frame. Absolutely. So once you've reached 40 weeks, I'm sure you are sick and tired of being pregnant. You know, there are three <laughs> stages of pregnancy. The first is sick and tired, the first trimester. And the second is, oh, baby kicks. It's the honeymoon period of pregnancy. But in the third trimester, it's get full stop, this full stop, baby full stop, out <laughs> exclamation mark. And when we reach 40 weeks, we're looking to, looking to in, in start an induction or talking about induction at 41 weeks because we don't want to go over the 42-week threshold and an induction could take longer than we expect. So we started around 41 weeks for post-date pregnancies. And doctor, from a sort of process or procedure perspective, are, are there different ways that labor can be induced and, and what are some of the safest options? So la ladies often ask me this question, how can I bring my labor on naturally? So let's talk about some natural methods to induce labor. This is what you can do at home. Um, they, there's nothing that's going to put you specifically into labor if you're not at the threshold of labor. In other words, we need to flint a fire, start to st strike a match, and hopefully the process snowballs into labor. But if you are looking at natural methods, we often, I always advise my patients to have a good session of sex. This uh, might sound a bit taboo, but the prostaglandins that are released in in semen and that is then um, deposited in the vagina can actually um, start induction of labor. Other natural methods include certain foods that you eat, a spicy hot meal, something like an aubergine lasagna or a curry. We're looking at raspberry leaf tea, dates, eating pineapples, going for walks, bouncing on a ball. And furthermore, there's nothing more you can do besides stand on your head if your labor is not going to start at home. So what does the doctor do when in inducing labor? The first port of call is a stretch and sweep, a stretch and sweep of the membranes. Basically what that means, it's an internal examination that your doctor does. And they try and breach the cervix or the mouth of the womb and wipe away the membranes that are there, thereby releasing prostaglandins, which will then start contractions. So that's a stretch and sweep or an internal exam that's usually done at term or thereafter. And that is to encourage labor to begin. But then we can look at the medical interventions that we can do. And those vary from mechanical uh, dilatation of the cervix to actually giving the patient medicine to start the labor. And as you can imagine, with labor, oxytocin is the love drug. It's the same drug that's released when you breastfeed. It's the same drug that's released when you are in labor. And it's the same hormone that's released 
after an orgasm. So first of all, that'll put a man to sleep. And secondly, it'll make a woman feel very loving. And we can actually administer oxytocin uh, for labor to progress and to augment. Furthermore, there's other medication or preparations that we can actually put into the vagina or drink orally called prostaglandins. And those then ripen the cervix, which then starts contractions. And and could I could I have any of this sort of done at home? So could a patient typically be able to induce labor at home? Well, we've spoken about some of the things that a patient can do, but when you're talking about a medical induction of labor, I draw the line with stretch and sweep. So I'm happy for us to do a stretch and sweep and then send you home and see if you go into labor. But when we're administering medication, we need to monitor yourself and your baby at the same time. So I don't see a place for an induction to be done at home. And doctor, you may have already mentioned or helped us to understand the concept of stretch and sweep, and I may have missed it. Just just help us to, to, to get a sense of the stretch and sweep again. So it's a very daunting procedure. I remember when I had my stretch and sweep at about 39 weeks of my pregnancy, I could only think of one thing, and that was kicking the gynecologist. But what it entails is an internal exam. So the, the doctor places their hands into the vagina, usually two fingers, and then reaches up to the top of the vagina where the mouth of the womb is or the cervix. And that cervix is like a very, very tight tube, which then needs to dilate open with a dilatation of about 10 centimeters in diameter for the baby to pass out. But when we do a stretch and sweep, we're basically putting the finger into the cervix and sweeping away those membranes that's lining the baby, the membranes that's lining the amniotic fluid, and that process stimulates the cervix to dilate. It stimulates the prostaglandins to be excreted, and that mm. can then cause contractions. I mean, as you were as you were speaking, I just remembered the experience of of, of that very thing you've just described. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it can be unpleasant. It's mm. uncomfortable, and I think it's good to be prepared for it, knowing what you're in for. And and doctor, if we're talking to, I mean, somebody is listening here, and they're a first time mom, um, and and they you know, find themselves confronted with a situation where labor does need to be induced. I mean, how, how long does, does it take for a first-time mom, you know, um, or even for subsequent pregnancies or births? What is, what is the duration of the process of induction of labor? So, Zoya, thank you for that question. It's a hard one because it depends on what form of induction you're going to be using. Usually with medical induction, we look at a labor onset of about eight hours and a delivery within 24 to 48 hours. It differs with a primigravida, which is a lady that's never had a baby before, as opposed to a multigravida, a lady that has had a baby before. We know that ladies that have had babies before, that have had a successful normal vaginal delivery, are more likely to go into labor and more likely to have a successful induction of labor and a quicker induction of labor. But for a first-time mom, my advice is always this. Be patient and take it one step at a time. Mm -hmm. So once the administration of the induction has started, be patient. Don't be in a rush. It can take 8 to 24 hours for your labor to start. So that's always when I tell people to pack a bag, pack the cooler box, and make themselves comfortable. And, and, and would you say induced labor is more painful than natural labor? I'm sitting here and I'm just, <laughs> I'm, like I said, I mean, I've had children myself and I know the process of labor. So would you, would you describe it as typically being more painful? So unmedicated an induction is, of course, going to be painful because it's starting your contractions. 
but I don't think that induction of labor is necessarily more painful than a normal onset of labor. You experience the same level of contractions and there's the same, the good news is that there's the same amount of pain relief available to you. It's not as if you have to go pain relief free in induction of labor. And and then, doctor, just, you know, around the pros and cons of, of inducing labor. So I hear that, you know, for the most part, I think for me, what keeps coming up is the fact that each induction is different. Um, there's different yes. reasons why people induce. And so this would have an impact necessarily on, you know, the route that you choose to take, which would then have an impact on the length of, of the induction process itself. I'm curious about if we're talking about the pros and cons of inducing labor, you know, what, what do you, and, and this is based on the experiences that you've had, uh, you know, what are some of the pros and cons around inducing labor? Are there associated risks even? So any intervention medically has risks. If you cut, you cry, they say. So the risk of an induction is that you are at an increased risk of a cesarean section when compared to somebody in spontaneous labor. Uh, the risk also is that your baby will go into distress if we overstimulate the uterus with contractions. And that can lead to fetal distress, which will then land you up with an emergency cesarean section. You are more likely to develop fetal distress with an induction than you are with spontaneous labor. And then there are also the other complications that it can lead to uh, cephalopelvic disproportion. Basically, your baby's head and your pelvis doesn't fit in together, and that could also lead to an emergency cesarean section. But the pros of an induction of labor is that we're taking a chance to do a normal delivery where we'd otherwise just go straight for a cesarean section. So you are increasing your chances of doing a normal delivery by doing an induction, and you're never going to know if it's going to work unless you try. And I suppose this this goes to my next question because I was sitting and I'm wondering, you know, are there instances where induction of labor fails? Uh, so we're trying to to induce this labor, and it just, I mean, does that even exist? Absolutely. So an induction is not a guarantee that you're going to go into normal delivery, and it's not a guarantee that you will have a normal delivery. So I think that just about answers the question. <laughs> and, and so, doctor, let's talk a little bit about. You know, some of the, and we'll call it psychological or emotional impact of, of having to go through this. I'm thinking about, you know, that expectant mother. I'm thinking about how you mentioned that sometimes an induction can, can lead to a situation where the baby's in distress and there's some challenges there. You know, what, what is the impact? And again, your experience from an emotional perspective of what mama goes through. You know, is there some kind of, you know, is there a psychological impact on the mother, which I guess there is, but what, what has your experience been and what is the impact on the baby as well? So emotionally women dread an induction of labor. I have my ladies coming in and saying, doctor, I want my spontaneous normal delivery, but please try and avoid an induction. Because there's the myth around the fact that it's going to be more painful. There's the fear of you have an increased chance of a cesarean section, which would mm. if, it essentially be an emergency. And that is a compromised situation. Because it's not necessarily going to be in daylight hours where there's enough staffing, where there is the facility to expedite a, a quick, safe cesarean delivery. So women fear an induction for the pain, for the fact that you can have a Caesar, and they're emotional about it because 
it also brings the pregnancy to an end. It, it, it sets a due date to it. Mm. So if my job is to just to encourage women to stay calm and to be relaxed in a controlled process. Even though we don't know exactly which direction or trajectory the, the process is going to go in, we know that an induction can be a safe procedure. We know that there's pain option, pain relief options available. And we know that if you're in a controlled setting, mm. then the outcome would be good if everybody's on board. And if we look at the warning signs, early warning signs that things aren't going right. Mm. So emotionally, I do take a lot of time to prepare my patients. Um, make sure that they understand why they're getting an induction, understand what an induction is, understand what the risks and benefits are, understand what we can do in case it fails mm. so that they know because we fear the unknown. If you, it's the same as ladies that fear going into labor. I send them up to the labor ward and get them to confront their fears. And when you know what to expect or at least what you, uh, the process entails, I think you're calmer about it. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And I'm, I suppose I'm curious about, so additional to, to giving, you know, the information or providing the necessary information that, that makes that pregnant person, that expecting mother to sort of, you know, become a little bit calmer. What else do we do as part of the, the preparation for labor induction? What are some of the other things that we do? So we start with really sort of being, uh, you know, honest about what they're confronted with and we share with them, you know, this is, this is what is going to happen. So we provide that information. What's some of the other preparation that we would necessarily put them through? So there'll obviously be a date decided. So we decide on a date and I don't let my ladies do anything physical or practical to uh, prepare for the induction. I think it's more your conversation and your communication with your patient that's important. Like I said, it's important that your patient's on board. So if you've got a patient that's fearing it, that doesn't know what to expect, they're going to be anxious and you've got a high chance that that induction is not going to work and that you're going to have an unhappy patient and possibly complications down the line because the patient's not prepared and not on board. So the patient definitely needs to understand the reason. They need to understand the procedure for the induction and that must be explained properly to them. And arrangements must be made for support and pain relief options that mm. you recognize that women are likely to find induction more painful than spontaneous labor because of the hype of it. And alternative options of the woman should also be discussed if they choose not to have an induction. We've spoken about the risks and the benefits mm. um, of the proposed induction method methods. And um, we need to talk about uh, what happens when it, if or what happens if it is unsuccessful. Um, it's, I think it's also imperative for us to prepare the lady by getting informed consent for your induction of labor. And I know that our South African Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology actually has a consent form for induction of labor, which explains beautifully what the procedure entails, what the risks are, as well as what alternative options are available. And doctor, you spoke a little bit about uh, one of the things that we do is to is to give them some kind of pain relief. And I'm curious about, you know, what what do we do there? So what's the pain relief that we typically would offer to somebody who is, you know, during that cervical or cervical ripening or induction of labor? So what, what are some of the methods of pain relief that we give to somebody who has to undergo the procedure? 
It's the same pain uh, relief methods that we offer for any lady in labor, and that starts off with anything from an injection, which could be a family of the opioids or the morphine family. Uh, these are pain med- medicines that you can get through uh, injection in the muscle or even intravenous uh, in- injection. Um, they make you feel sleepy, which can help you not experience as much pain. Furthermore, everybody knows about the, the epidural, and the epidural, uh, the doctor uses a needle to put a thin tube or a catheter into the back. And then we administer the med- medicine through the tube. So you literally have something stuck on your back and a thin catheter just outside the spinal cord. And this uh, provides a spinal block, which reduces the sensation and the power to the nerves from about the thorax down or from the the chest down. And that helps us with a lot of pain relief if it works well and helps us gain hours of dilatation of the cervix. Um, Epidural is often an option that a lot of women opt for. um, And it's, it's seen us through a lot of normal deliveries. So the last option for pain relief is, of course, nitrous oxide or laughing gas. And that's usually given towards the end of labor when other medicines aren't uh, available. Remember that your opioids can't be given within two hours of the delivery of the baby because it makes your baby sleepy and reduces their their will to breathe. There is an antidote that we can inject your baby with if you have a sudden labor and we've given you something like pethidine beforehand. Mm. Um, and then also the epidural can't be given after a certain stage of cervical dilatation. And what's more, sometimes we need to switch the epidural off before the delivery so that you can help push your baby out. I mean, doctor, I think you, you really have, have, have given us, um, you know, some, some good information. Um, it's clear. It's making sense to me, certainly. But I also have, I've read a lot of stories, um, regarding, you know, labor induction. And, you know, some of the stories are already positive. Um, some of them are even strange. And I, and I suppose the question I have is, are there any myths uh, that you'd like to dispel regarding labor induction? I mean, there's so many stories out there, and you know that most of us would typically run to Dr. Google, uh, you know, at the first sign of anything that's a little bit strange. What are some of the myths that you, you'd like to dispel around uh, labor induction? Well, the first thing is that I don't want women to fear an induction. And when you, when we've spoken about the fear associated with induction, it's associated with pain with labor. But remember, there's no such thing as a pain-free delivery. But even if you have an elective cesarean section afterwards, you would have undergone major surgery and it would be painful. With uh, normal labor, even if you go into spontaneous labor, By the time you get to the hospital, you're there because you're experiencing pain. By the time we put up your epidural, yes, we can relieve your pain, but there is still some pain experience. So the same is true with an induction. Some people fear that it's going to be more painful, but like I mentioned, the pain medication that's available to those with spontaneous labor is also available to those with an induction. So I don't want women to fear the pain associated with induction. The other, the other fear that they will have is that they're going to land up with an emergency cesarean. Yes, your chances are greater than with a spontaneous delivery, but your chances are there with a spontaneous delivery as well. 
that you end up in emergency caesar. And that is why I tell my patients, that is why we deliver in the hospital, because we have the facilities for a caesarean section, for blood transfusion if necessary. And and in your experience, doctor, you know, if we're talking about sort of the local incidence or the local occurrence um, of of induction of labor, how common is this? And we can even maybe do a comparison with other countries, whether that's sort of within the African region or even across the globe. What is what is the incidence of induction of labor within South Africa? So um, you posed this question to me before we had our session, and it's difficult to answer because the statistics are just fraught at the moment and not very reliable. Our international statistics are a significant uh, level of induction, but it's also very well monitored and controlled. I read a local study that was performed at one of the academic universities, and that is, of course, the government sector, and their induction rate was anything from 15 to 20%. I'm assuming that overseas it's probably similar. Okay. And and doctor, maybe I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. Um, I've just remembered that there's, there's something that I, I should have covered a little bit earlier that I want to go to. So in doing some of the research around this particular topic, I came across a concept called the bishop score. Um, and I've been sitting wondering, so what is this bishop score? It, what is it? You know, how, how is it important or, or what is its relevance or importance for a successful induction and, and a normal delivery? I'm glad you mentioned this because it's it's absolutely pivotal when it comes to making the decision as the clinician to do the induction of labor. So what this entails, again, is an internal examination, I'm afraid. We need to assess what's happening what are the likelihood, what is the likelihood of us actually having a successful induction? And we use, for this, we use a method called the modified Bishop score. And it's an, it's basically a score that we add up the numbers and you get a, a count. And if your count is above nine, you have a high chance of normal delivery with an induction. If it's below nine, you have a low chance. And the features we look at is the cervix. We look at if how far dilated it is. We look at the length of the cervix. Then we look at where in the pelvis is the pregnancy or the cervix. And that could be either very high up, which gives you a, a negative number or low down and then we also feel the cervix for its consistency it's either going to be firm moderately soft or soft and in which position does it find itself and with those parameters we can then um, equate it into a bishop score and make a decision regarding that and and you know just as we we come to a close you know in the conversation i'm curious about you know are there things someone can do to prevent a situation where labor might have to be induced? I think this is very individualized and um, there's nothing you can do, like I said, besides standing on your head to induce your labor at home. But I think it's important to stay well informed, to maintain a healthy lifestyle that is good amount of protein and all your other food groups uh, stay well hydrated, make sure you stay away from anything that is toxics, including alcohol and smoking and any illicit drugs, um, avoiding dangerous activity, and then just leading a healthy lifestyle, which will then hopefully translate into a healthy pregnancy. And if you are the person that lands up with an induction, needing an induction, then having the right information behind you is key. 
Mm. And I think that's a powerful way to end, you know, stay informed, lead a healthy lifestyle, um, stay hydrated. Mm. And I think first and foremost, it is about just ensuring that you take good care of your health. And of course, if you do spot any signs, you know, of something, so for example, you said that vaginal bleeding, we spoke to this a little bit earlier, if there's a little bit of vaginal, ble- uh, you know, a bleeding, you spoke about those contractions and differentiated between, you know, uh, you know, those contractions and what we typically call the Braxton Hicks contractions, and maybe you do need to go, uh, you know, to see your, your healthcare specialist. Doctor, you know, this has been, you know, very informative. If I said to you, you know, what are your parting words uh, with the women who are listening to this podcast and even to those who typically have to support somebody who's going through this, what would you say to them? I would just say, stay calm, stay positive, have a good conversation with your clinician, whether it be your midwife or your gynae or your GP, whoever's delivering your baby, so that the two of you understand which page you're on, that you understand the procedure that you're going to be having, and that you are well prepared for it and that you keep a positive attitude. And after all, you are having a baby. Thank you so much, Doctor. This has been insightful. It's been informative. And I know that for the people who are sitting or listening to the conversation, um, this really has been worth our while. Thank you for your time uh, and thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you very much. We've come to the end of the conversation. And to those listening, thank you to you as well. Uh, thank you. That's it from me, Zoya Mabutomoguritwa. Thank you for listening to the hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.